Hello, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I hope that you are all having a fantastic Friday and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Carla Ionescu and I am the host of this podcast. And today we are going to talk about Aphrodite. Now, in all fairness, there is so much to say about Aphrodite. Literally, I could teach an entire season or term or course on Aphrodite herself. And so when I was going down this rabbit hole of Aphrodite, I thought, okay, let's narrow it down to the things that I find most interesting or the things that maybe haven't been discussed as much about her, which is, of course, my favorite thing to do and um, and try and also make it a little bit fun. Because I think one of the things that has happened is that there is a saturation of Greek myths in the world, of course, in the Western world, but in the world. And I think it has been simplified and oversimplified in so many ways that I'm still fascinated that people are fascinated. Well, I'm fascinated, so I guess that makes sense. But I one of the things, one of my goals in doing this podcast and in writing the books and in doing all the things that I'm planning to do uh, with the Artemis Center, with this podcast, like I said, one of the things that I want to do is bring out as much of the original myths as possible, but especially see how those myths are applicable today or continue to be applicable today or how they're applied today in order to shape the framework of our societies or the restrictions or roles or, you know, depending on which goddess we're talking about and when, um, the expectations based on these divinities. Now, interestingly, in the ancient world among the Greeks, these myths saved, served exactly the same purpose. That was to present appropriate behavior or to present inappropriate behavior with the excuse that this is what the gods do because they can, but it is not proper behavior or it is, or it is an example of jealousy or envy or greed or whatever. And so in many ways, I guess myths haven't changed at all in the fact that they are teaching us societal norms and societal values. But for me, what's really fascinating is that the Greek myths and other myths, I mean, we're doing a lot of Greek stuff because that's my area of expertise, but also that's my culture, it's my history. So we're doing a lot of popular myths and popular gods for now, certainly in season one. In season two, we'll see, I'm going to pick some other interesting things. Um, but we're doing a lot of that because I think so much of that has been manipulated by those in authority of education, of film, of video games, of everything, has been manipulated to actually fit their worldview or their world plan for a worldview. And that's the part that really irks me as a historian. Um, the fact that we're almost miseducated about mythology and purposely miseducated. Now, that being said, not everything is a miseducation. Not everything is a big plan. But over time, the goals of those in authority have been very similar. And so the 
the shaping of the myths, whether as a collaborative group or individuals that sort of have power over curriculums or over knowledge, have continued to purposely shape ancient myths in specific ways. And Aphrodite is one of those places where this, I think, is most obvious. I think it's it's obvious in many of the goddesses and of the gods, let's be honest. But Aphrodite, particularly because she became such an obsession, such a cultural obsession um, in the ancient world and in the modern world, that she really is the almost like the epitome of the way that a story can be shaped to speak to what the powers of B want us to see kind of thing, right? Uh, and I'm going to go into that as we go through our podcast, but I just want you to, th- I just want to kind of preface that um, before we get started, because there is so much about Aphrodite that is unsaid. And then there is so much, She's, she was such a significant powerhouse as a goddess but as in as an as an image as a symbol too uh for women and men and um there's lots of layers there so i'm going to try to take some apart um because i don't want us to be here for eight hours uh but also i'm going to try to take some apart so that it's kind of fun and actually what I'm doing what i'm starting to do now which is i just kind of because i have so much information (laughs) so much to say so what I'm trying, what I'm going to do now is I'm starting what I call after the podcast. Um, and so what I would love to do is do this podcast more full time. And as those of you who follow me know, I'm a professor at several colleges and universities in Ontario, Canada. I'm a contract professor because in Ontario, Canada, contract professors are now the only ways you can be a professor anymore. Um that's a whole other rant. But um, and so I teach a lot, a lot, a lot of courses in order to pay my rent and uh, feed my family. And so I would really love to do more of this um, instead of teaching courses, although I do love my students and I enjoy teaching courses. But like last term in the spring, I taught 17 courses, which if you're an academic or if you're in the field or if you're a teacher, you know that that's already insane. At the university level, people tell me that I'm a little nuts. Uh, So I would like to cut down on that. And I would like to spend more time on my research and more time doing these kinds of things. And so I've started my Patreon. Well, I've, I had it for a while, but I've never really promoted it or used it. Um, I'm really terrible at self-promotion. Maybe one day I'll have somebody who'll help me do that. Um, and, uh, and so I've, I have this Patreon. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do after every podcast, I'm going to do a little like 20 minute, um, discussion that will be just like on one thing and, uh, just a little bit of a rant on this one thing that will go a little bit, uh, perhaps a little more controversial, perhaps a little more informative. I don't know. Um, and I'm going to post those on my Patreons for those of you who would like to support this podcast. So I'll put all the links in there. There's a links on my YouTube for it. And I'm going to show you in this podcast what we'll be talking about. So it's, you know, so that you kind of have an idea of um, what does after the podcast mean. Um, and so I'm starting to do that with Aphrodite because, again, there was just so much information. Uh, there's so much information on everyone, but I really wanted to um, to start with her. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. And uh, 
thank you for joining us. And I hope that you're going to enjoy uh, this little discussion about Aphrodite. And if you've been here from the beginning, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing and liking and watching. And uh, again, enjoying sort of learning a different skew on um, mythology. And so my skew, is that a Canadian thing to say? I don't know if people say that. But my perspective on the myths will be to use a lot of primary source. This is what I do. And so I could give you sort of the real mythologies, uh, the original mythologies, and then add a little bit of popular culture and connecting and cross-cultural uh, connections and symbols and things like that. So hopefully you'll have a lot of fun and um, you'll come back for more. So if you're on YouTube... Oops, I'm going to share my screen. Um, I really love making these PowerPoints. They also take me quite some time. So let me just pull that, this one up. Um, because I really, okay, there we go. Because I really enjoy the imaging and then sort of the phrasing and the catchphrasing. And, um, and then what I do is I make a bunch of notes from a bunch of sources that I'm going to talk about. Uh, sometimes I read you a story, so it's going to be lots of fun. So the title of this uh, episode, which is episode uh, 16 in our season one. So we got 20 episodes. Oh, I should say too, guys, that I want to thank you so much for the questions that you're uh, sending to me on Instagram and on social media for our finale podcast. Um, I have about a dozen questions, which is a lot of fun. Um, please send me more of your questions if you like. So what I'm going to do for our finale podcast, for those of you that are new, is I'm going to be answering questions anonymously. Um, and so you you can send them however you like, but I will be answering them anonymously about goddesses, about history, about classics, about life, about all of the things. So whatever you want to ask, uh, feel free to ask. Um, I usually post some kind of a question on the Instagram. Uh, sorry, a question submission on the Instagram and then people just submit their questions through there and I screenshot them and I'm going to be using them for, uh, for our finale. Um, so we have um, uh, three more episodes left um, of for the season and then our finale, which I'm very, very excited about. So the title of this episode is the ultimate femme fatale yeah. because Aphrodite really is what we would call a femme fatale. So we're going to talk about what is a femme fatale and how does Aphrodite play in that key role and one of I think the themes for today is this idea that beautiful women are scary that beauty is a weapon and that beauty and power often leads to van leads to vanity and I think for Aphrodite some of that is true and I also think that some of that is clearly invented or, yeah, no, invented to take away some of her power. Yeah. Um, we have long been suspicious of beautiful women. So the ultimate femme fatale. We have long been suspicious of beautiful women. If you think about some of the most beautiful women in the world, whatever that means, some of the reactions to a lot of beautiful women is so there's two things. I mean, psychological, uh, psych 
psychology teaches us that beauty gives a, gives you certain open certain doors for you. So I an attractiveness and all those kinds of things. So I agree with that 100%. I think that attractiveness does open doors for you. But what's really fascinating about Aphrodite and about so-called beautiful women is the fact that men often felt weak or they felt themselves weak in front of beautiful women. And in that weakness, they hated themselves for that weakness. And so then they blamed the woman for doing something to them so that they that weakness is not something that they had to be accountable for. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. But if you think, and, and women do the same in the sense that women have been taught from a very young age and not taught purposely. I don't mean like women, like young girls are taken aside and taught you must not like beautiful women or you must really like them, but also privately hate them. Uh, I don't mean it like that. I mean that that information for most young women is absorbed in the culture and in the home and in the family because our mothers and grandmothers on average spent a lot of time gossiping about each other because again, that's something that is taught and retaught and uh, encouraged, right? And so talking about other women or women talking about other women, particularly very beautiful women, there's a love-hate relationship with beautiful women. We are attracted to them and we kind of hate them for that beauty. Um, and, you know, this is not something new, I'm sure, to all of you. I'm sure you've seen a 100,000 examples of this. Um, but I want you to understand that this is something that is purposely created and over time has become so unconscious as a society, as a culture, and perhaps even as a world, if we're doing the whole Jungian collective unconscious idea that uh, that as a collective, we have these deep rooted um, collective thoughts, let's say. So as a, because everywhere you go, you see a very similar reaction. When someone is too beautiful, you are both attracted and a bit resentful. Uh, when someone is too beautiful, especially women, men get this a bit too, but especially women, you don't really think that they're that smart. You don't really think that they're that wise. You don't, you, you have this tendency to think that everything they have is because of the way they look. You think they don't work too hard. There's all these sort of assumptions of beautiful women. Um, and a lot of that comes from this very ancient Western mentality. And it comes from the fear of men in power. And the sense is that men in power can be seduced by beautiful women. So they can't control themselves, right? You can hear my sigh already. Um, and so then the blame or the suspect becomes the beautiful woman. And Aphrodite is literally the embodiment of that. There are two things that I think are my pet peeves for Aphrodite. The first one is that she is always naked. Well, not always. Yeah, Aphrodite Rania usually has, um, she's veiled in some way. But she is so often naked, so often naked. Um, and I know that she's supposed to represent sex and love and all of these things. But one of the things that irks me is this um, liberty, this liberty that male sculptors take with depicting her naked or half naked. It's that sort of 
privilege in the sense that any female that has to do with that, that represents sex or sexuality or is very sexual uh, can be portrayed naked without consideration. Um, and so I think that's what irks me a little bit is um, there is beauty to nakedness, of course, but there is a little bit of also vulnerability and of course there's vulnerability to being naked. I don't know how to put that in words actually right now, but I, so I have it in my mind as a concept. Uh, but the idea is, you know, her being naked all the time is something that takes away from her power and takes away it's and, and takes away from her complexity. Maybe that's the right word. It takes away from her complexity because even if her power is sex and love and fertility, she is so much more powerful than that, as we'll discuss. She has so much more power. And I think presenting her naked all the time takes away or is an attempt to take away from her other complexities. Okay, there. I think I've said that properly now, the way that I feel. Um, so other goddesses, you know, Athena, Artemis, Demeter, literally every single other goddess is covered. Um, and yet their power is intact, of course. So you don't have to depict our, uh, Aphrodite naked all the time. But anyways, she is depicted naked oftentimes. And again, sort of that visual um, of her uh, role in relationships of sex and love. Interestingly, the reason why I call her a femme fatale is and, and perhaps this may not have been a word the ancients uh, used, but certainly I think it, it's a feeling or a perspective. Aphrodite is the kind of woman that follows no rules. Yeah. She indulges herself in her own beauty. She is the epitome of self-care, self-love, prioritizing herself. She does whatever the heck she wants. She doesn't care uh, that she's married. Uh, she doesn't care that she has children, mortal or divine. She doesn't care what Zeus says about her or what so-and-so says about her. She she has no fucks to give, pardon my language, for those of you who don't hear me swear that often. She has none to give. None. None. None to give. Okay? And that actually makes her dangerous. Yeah. Again, we're in this weird place where you adore her for that. And men and women in the ancient world, of course, adored her for her rebelliousness, for her beauty, for her power, but also feared her. And I would argue we're also often frustrated with the fact that no one could um, chain her down, you know, no one could control her, no one could domesticate her. So, you know, especially in Athens, where domestication of women is a very uh, primary social motive um aphrodite <laughs> really breaks all the rules and feels no guilt about it and feels nothing about it and so i call her a femme fatale because she really she can be very cruel as we'll see and she can be very selfish but she basks in that right um and yeah she does not care about the rules that are put around her at all, okay? So let's talk a little bit about her origin story before I tell you about her lovers and her children. Her origin stories are complex because, well, not complex, but one of the things that 
is interesting about Aphrodite that is, I think is more clear than some of the other goddesses other than maybe Hecate is that she is not an Olympian. She is an Olympian, but she's not an Olympian. So one of the things about Aphrodite, I think, because she comes out of these pre-Greek, pre-even Minoan Mycenaean traditions, we can trace her, I think, all the way back to Sumer. Um, we can trace her back to almost tribal um, culture because she is the goddess of fertility and sex and love. And so goddesses of fertility are as old as human beings. And because of that, I think Aphrodite is one of the most difficult goddesses for the Greeks to pin down. Now, we've talked about in the past how the Greeks, when they arrived in the Mediterranean, um, married off the ruling goddesses in that space. And uh, I think I've talked about this when I talked about Artemis, and I talk about this when I talk about um, different goddesses. And the Nike one, we talked a little bit about how all the goddesses were married off. Uh, or partnered up in the case of Artemis and Apollo and or given some kind of a male bestie or brother. And Aphrodite is also married off as we'll see. But one of the things that she does that um, other goddesses before her don't is that she has a very unique birth story. And we find this birth story, of course, in Hesiod. Now, Homer Homer is an interesting figure because, you know, Homer is very, is like a Zeuthian, I would call him. Homer is, if there was a Homer, but we won't get into that rant today. But uh, Homer is a character that really wanted to glorify the Olympians and the Greeks and, you know, his heroes. And so he has a very significant bias. Not saying that Hesiod doesn't have a bias. Of course he does. He has a, a bias certainly towards masculinity, of course, towards the so-called Greek civilization. Uh, but he claims to want to write down history as it was, not necessarily as it's being told. And so Hesiod, I think I would say, is slightly more trustworthy to me uh, than the writings of Homer, because he has uh, sort of an early academic perspective. He wants to record what he hears and sees. Okay, again, not never without bias, uh, because that's just the way it is. So I was going to, so I'm going to tell you the the origin story from Hesiod, and of course the the Homer story. So Hesiod tells us um, that um, Aphrodite comes from the foam of the sea, okay, from the genitals of Uranus. Um, sorry, I'm trying to think of, let me start at the beginning of the story. So, because I don't want to read you the, well, let me read you the story by Hesiod, okay? So Uranus comes, Uranus came, bringing on night and longing for love, okay? He lies about Gaia, the earth, spreading himself full upon her. Okay. Now, Uranus is often referred to as the sky and Gaia is, of course, the earth. And then his, this, their son, Kronos, uh, ambushes him by taking a great long sickle with jagged teeth and lopping up his father's members and casting them away. Now, so this is often referred to as castration. Uh, most scholars say that it was Uranus's testicles that were castrated off. And so um, Kronos comes along and he's, 
you know, he chops those off and throws them in the sea. Okay. <laughs> now his hair goes on to tell him that they floated there for a while. I mean, the, the imagery, right? They floated them for there for a while. And in their floating, they created um they created this foam, this afros. Yeah. So it's something about the testicles of the sky floating in the sea creates this foam. Yeah. And out of this foam, right? Out of this foam grows a maiden. Okay? And eventually she settles in Cyprus. She came forth an awful and lovely goddess. Notice this. I love this language, right? Awful and lovely at the same time. And grass grew up about her beneath her shapely feet. So wherever she walked, grass grew up. Um, she came with Eros. So there's a lot of commentary about how Eros was born with her or that she gave birth to Eros in the foam but whatever it was she came with eros and of course himeros which is desire uh who followed her from her birth right from the moment of her birth as she goes to the assembly of the gods and she presents herself to the olympians now homer tells us a little bit of a different story um he says that she's very lovely right everybody's welcoming uh, aphrodite you know she's clothed with all of these beauties and luxuries so she's uh what do you call it? She's full of uh, wealth, full of wealth and luxury. But what he tells her us is that she is actually the daughter of Zeus and Dion. Okay. Uh, and then we have other stories of her being the daughter of Kronos and Unami, of Uranus and Hermera. There's all these. So there's all these parentages that are um, attributed to her later on. But the earliest story, and I think this is the story that gets repeated over and over again, as we'll see, is her coming out of the sea. So if that's the case, then Aphrodite has no parentage. Well, I mean, unless you count Oronos's testicles as some kind of parentage, I suppose. Um, but it's a, it's a very unique and mysterious um, birth. She comes on a seashell, which is really interesting. I'm sure you've seen lots of art in which she is carried on a seashell. Lots of inscriptions in which she's associated with seashells and she's associated with the sea. Interestingly, um, she is, you know, she said to sometimes have been a lover of Poseidon, but there's no connection between her and Poseidon um, as far as parental con connection. And so she's a really fascinating figure. You know, where did she come from? Why did the Greeks accept this weird testicle foam story, right? Um, so there's something very powerful there. There's an image that's very powerful there that they could not, they could not have, they could not put out, right? They could not destroy it. Um, there's also this really great story visual that I wanted to read to you, which is really, really beautiful. Um, that's from the 5th century BCE. Aphrodite, roaming over the waves like sea lettuce, moving her soft skinned body in her voyage over the white, calm sea. She pulls the breakers along her path. Above her rosy breast and below her soft neck, a great wave divides her skin. In the midst of the furrow, like a lily wound among violets, cypress shines out from the clam sea. Over the silver, over the silver on dancing dolphin ride guileful arrows and laughing himeras, and the chorus of bow-backed fish plunging in the waves sports with Paphia where she swims. So what this beautiful image of Aphrodite coming out of the water, but running the water and Eros and Himera's sort of 
carrying this chariot um, and the water answering to her. And so my argument and many other academics argument is that Aphrodite is actually a far, far more archaic divinity that is associated with the sea or coming out of the sea. And that in fact, she is multi-layeredly powerful um, and that she was minimized into a fertility love sex goddess by the Greeks and their obsession with her love sex. Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, attributes. Yeah. But she was actually a personification of the generative generative powers of nature. And some argue she was the mother of all living beings. Right. So there's this association between her and Gaia. A trace of this notion seems to be contained in this tradition, uh, in that contest of Typhon with the gods, which we've talked about before, where Aphrodite metamorphosized herself into a fish. And this, and the fish, of course, in the ancient world is a symbol of um, the, some of the greatest generative powers. We haven't done the symbols of fish, actually. Perhaps when we look at mermaids, we'll talk about this idea of um, generative powers that are associated with the sea and with fish. And so then she, so, so she can transform herself. Of course, many gods can transform themselves into another being, but this, her constant association with the sea and in this, this particular incident in this war uh, or this fight with Typhon, um, she becomes a fish shows us that she actually has archaic attributes of uh, regenerative power. Uh, but of course, the Greeks then, over time, force her into a categorization of the goddess of love, who excites passion in the hearts of gods and men, and by this power, uh, ruled all living creation. So one of the things that I guess gives her some power, even after the Greeks had um, tried to domesticate her, is that she still had the power over creation um, and lust and sex. Yeah. And so I have this image from a video game called Smite, the battleground of the gods. And uh, this is a new skin for Aphrodite. And I really love this image because, well, this image is, is incorporates many aspects of sort of dragonness and vampiricism and sort of the blonde ambition and the femme fatale. It's everything. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Uh, it's powerful. Uh, but one of my favorite things about this image and about the continued representation of Aphrodite is that she remains undomesticated. So despite the continued and oppressive um, ways in which the Greeks tried to tame her, Aphrodite not only remains undomesticated, but she remains frightening. And the beautiful thing about that is that the frightening aspect is her beauty. So we've looked at many scary women that um, um, that embody or that uh, take control of their so-called monstrosities or ugliness, and they take it and they turn it into a power. Uh, you know, like we've talked about many of the snake mothers and of course, Medusa and other, uh, even the harpies and other goddesses. So that in ugliness, so to speak, in ugliness, there is power. And, and I think that's fantastic. One of the things we don't often talk about is the permission for beautiful women to use their beauty as power. Now, to be fair, of course, beautiful women have often used their beauty as power. And good for them. 
But one of the things that we don't do is we don't encourage that. Does that make sense? So we celebrate so-called ugly women. And I just want to make clear that I have no judgment of what is ugly and beautiful other than sort of, you know, artistic or your own visual preference for my own personal self. But when I say ugly versus beautiful, we're talking about societal norms. Okay. So let's say that someone is societally, societally attributed as ugly and that someone embodies or takes that power back and says, I'm going to embrace this ugliness and I'm going to turn it into my own power, into my own weapon, into something that works for me. And we celebrate that and rightfully so. But when beautiful women do that same thing, when beautiful women say, well, I'm going to take this power, I'm going to embrace it, and I'm going to use it for myself to better myself and whatever, we feel a little judgy. And, and, you know, if you don't agree with me, that's all right, of course. Uh, Actually, please let me know if you don't agree with me. But I feel a little bit in my experience in the classroom and the world and films and whatever, watching celebrities in Hollywood um, that like, how dare do beautiful women admit that they're beautiful and using that beauty to gain to get to where they're going? Does that make sense? We go, oh, well, like, oh, you're going to do that. There's something, and perhaps it's our own jealousy or our own envy, but there is something that, yeah, it is our own jealousy and our own envy because there's something that wants to fight back. We don't celebrate beautiful women embracing beauty. And so sometimes people will send me things and it will be something like, well, of course she got this. Look at how she looks. Or of course, and, I, and I'm always like, why do we do this to ourselves? Beautiful women have every right to use that beauty for whatever it is that works for them, in my opinion. Um, and Aphrodite is um, the ep- epitome of this. Um, and so if there is jealousy or greed on our part, that's an us problem, not a them problem. Him. Uh, and so Aphrodite is one of those people that shamelessly and unguiltily and freely say, yes, I am the most stunning goddess of the Olympians. And yes, I will be using that to my advantage. Okay, so let's talk about her marriages, since we're talking about all this undomesticated. So some of the, or her lovers, um, I want to talk a little bit more about Aries and Hephaestus, uh, but she also, we'll talk a little bit briefly about her love. She basically sleeps with uh, or has intimate relationships with every single Olympian. Uh, Dionysus is included in their Poseidon, like I said. Um, Actually, except Apollo, which is kind of interesting. Uh, But I suppose Apollo is not interested in strong female characters. He's interested in women he can... um, chase and threaten uh, usually mortal women like Daphne and or demigods like Daphne and Cassandra. Um, and so, but Aphrodite has intimate relationships with all or many of the Olympian gods. But the ones that I really want to focus on is Ares and Hephaestus, of course, uh, because Ares is the one that she loves. And I say that in quotation because for her, love is fluid. And uh, Hephaestus is the one that she's thrown um, into marriage. 
And so I wanted to read to you a little bit of how this happens to her. Um, how does she, how does Aries lose Aphrodite um, to Hephaestus in marriage? So there's an early fifth century BC story where it says uh, a fragment that says, um, "One day Aries came in from the battlefield brandishing a strong spear and began to make fun of Eros's weapon." And Eros said, this one is heavy. Try it and you will see. Eris takes the javelin while Aphrodite smiles quietly. And with a groan, he says, it is heavy. Take it back. Keep it, says Eris. Eris. Eros. Sorry, Eros. And in this way, presumably bound Ares and Aphrodite in love. So this is sort of the original, how did Ares and Aphrodite fall in love? You know what? I think this would make a fantastic... Um, Theories. There's so much that happens between Aphrodite and Aries in primary source. It's really fascinating. Um, so if anybody out there knows, uh, you know, someone from Netflix, give me a call. I've got total great show ideas. Uh, but unfortunately, so Eros makes Aphrodite and Aries fall in love in this way. But unfortunately, for some reason, that doesn't work out. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a minute. So how does Aries then lose Aphrodite? And so the story of marriage of Hephaestus and Aphrodite can be reconstructed from a few text fragments and some ancient Greek vase paintings. Okay, uh, Hephaestus had been cast from heaven by his mother Hera at birth, for she was ashamed at, at bearing a crippled son. I'm going to do a little side note on Hephaestus in a minute. Then he was rescued by Thetis and Euronome and raised in a cave on the shores um, of the river Okeanus, where he became skilled um, as a skilled uh, smith, blacksmith. So he makes all the weaponry um, for the Olympians and for others. Angry at his mother's treatment, Hephaestus sent various gifts to Olympus, including a golden throne for Hera. Okay, that's his mother. When the goddess sat upon this throne, this cursed throne, she was bound fast. So she couldn't get out. She couldn't get up from the throne. So Zeus sought the assistance of the god in freeing his queen and offered the goddess Aphrodite in marriage to the god who would bring Hephaestus to Olympus. Aphrodite agreed to the arrangement in the belief that Ares would prevail. Of course, Ares would prevail. However, Ares stormed the forge of Hephaestus bearing arms, but was driven back by the divine smith by Hephaestus with showers of flaming metal. Okay. Dionysus then approached the god and suggested he might claim Aphrodite for himself if he was to release his mother willingly. Hephaestus was pleased with this plan and ascended to heaven with Dionysus, released his mother, and wed the reluctant love goddess. So is this like a tragic love story or what? Okay. Everything about this story is tragic. Everything about the story is tragic. First of all, I know that right now you're probably like, fuck Hephaestus. Like, why is he doing that? Okay. And in some ways, yes. Because in some ways, he profited from a situation where he had not intended to have anything to do with Aphrodite, but he he profited from that. Uh, but he is a child that requires, that has his own trauma, okay? Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Hephaestus. So Hephaestus is, uh, like I said, the um, what we would call the golden blacksmith. So he makes all the weapons uh, we might, I might even do a whole podcast on him because I can't go over everything um, with you here. But he makes all the weapons. Uh, one of the most famous, of course, of weapons is um, Achilles's um, warrior gear. And he's also the one that cracks Zeus's head open to let Athena out fully, fully grown. Um, and so Hephaestus is a, 
interesting character because again he's a character that doesn't get enough attention what's really fascinating about Hephaestus though and he's Vulcanus in um in the Roman although the Romans had another Vulcan god but anyway he's Vulcanus in um in the Roman pantheon and so when you think about Vulcans if you're a Trekkie like me I always think about Hephaestus and his skill at making things and he's a very strategic person or god whatever anyways I have some sympathy for this God, as you can tell. So he, what's really fascinating about him is that, is that there are lots of stories about his birth, but the one that's apparently the oldest is that Hera created Hephaestus on her own without any male counterpart as revenge for Zeus having created Athena out of his head. Okay. Now, one day, I promise I will do a whole podcast on Athena and the fact that she has a mother. The mother was inside Zeus's body and I guess died when Athena was born. Um, and so Athena is not the birth child or only child of Zeus. But apparently this is the story that many Greeks enjoyed. And so Hera, despite Zeus, creates her own son. This is a perfect example of late parthenogenetic mythology. So parthenogenesis is when a goddess or a woman, but obviously a goddess in this case, creates life without the help of a male consort or male seed. Okay, So Gaia is the first example and one example that is repeatedly um, used because Gaia creates everything, including her own consorts. She gives birth to Uranus um, and then he becomes her consort. So um, and this, I know we're sidetracking here, but this actually is something that can be later applied to Jesus and Mary, uh, because there's a theory that because Mary was divinely conceived Jesus, right? Um, I know people think, okay, with God's help, but it's not technically a seed or a sexual encounter. So we, people argue, oh, well, Mary, uh, conceived Jesus on her own and then he becomes her consort. Now, before you throw stones at me, that's not to say that her and Jesus have a sexual relationship. Of course not. Um, but that is to say that her and Jesus have a type of partnership, a mother and son relationship that's very close, that's very private. And in fact, the only time in the Bible where someone tells Jesus what he what to do and he does it is when Mary tells him there's not enough wine. You better make some more wine out of water. He's not happy about it. He goes, ah. My time has not yet come. He kind of, you know, stabs back. A mom, stop telling me what to do. But he does it. He does listen to her. And so in many ways, I would say that the Jesus, Mary Jesus relationship is co a consort in a way that's non-sexual, right? So sometimes when we think about consorts, we think too much about sexuality because we live in a very sex-starved society and sex-obsessed society. But um, when, I, when we talk about Mary and Jesus as being sort of consorts, well, we're not talking about a sexual relationship we're talking more about a partnership and so back to Aphrodite and back to Hera this is a very old tradition same thing with Isis and Horus right so Isis gives birth to Horus you know by using Osiris's dead body so in a way there is a type of um what do you call it uh not fecundity but uh, there is a type of fertility ritual or donation there uh but 
again, very interestingly, Osiris is half in the underworld and dead. So then Isis and Osiris become consorts. And well, in fact, Isis and Osiris also have, sorry, Isis and Horus becomes consort and Isis and Horus also have children. So that is a sexual relationship. And Gaia and Uranus become consorts. And that is a sexual relationship. Um, but, you know, by the time you get to Christianity, sex is like banned. <laughs> and so uh, to have Mary and Jesus in a sexual relationship would be really like it would just be total um, a violation of, of that traditional celibacy or abstinence or conservative way of looking at sexuality so um but what i want you to think about not sorry <laughs> not so much the sexual relationship but the consort partner relationship and so hera gives birth to hephaestus without the help of zeus now the examples that i've given you just now are complementary relationships that is the son loves his mother whether it's intimately or not, loves his mother. But Hephaestus does not because he is crippled. So some stories say that he has like one um, leg that doesn't work, uh, a lame leg like they used to say back in the day, or both of his legs are too small for his body. So there's this sort of um, understanding that Hephaestus is not as, uh, what's the word? capable or able or differently able than the other gods and the theory is that the reason for this is because Hera birthed him by herself so because she or, or um why is the word not coming to me for um conceived him thank you conceived him by herself and so that that conception from Hera was not complete and because it didn't have a male seed. And so this is why Hephaestus is supposedly not, com not complete. Now, there are other stories in which Hera throws him down, like I've just read to you, throws him down from Olympus. And in throwing him down, he hurts his legs. So there's that story. There are stories that Hera doesn't want to tell him who his parents are, right? I mean, he knows that's his mother, but he doesn't know who his father is because he doesn't have a father. And so he goes to this length of building this throne and trapping her so that he would tell her, so, so she would tell him who was his father, right? Um, and she refuses to tell him. But in this case now, back to Aphrodite and Harry, uh, and Ares, what happens is, is Aphrodite is sold in a way as a bargain um, between all the Olympians except Ares. So Ares tries really hard to fight uh, to, to to save Hera from this throne and to fight Hephaestus. And he really tries very hard to um, protect his lover, but he fails. And because he fails in that, um, Aphrodite is married off to Hephaestus. Of course, she's unwilling um, because she's in love with Ares and others, but of course she's unwilling. And so it's a tragic love story for everyone involved. Um, again, Netflix, call me. Hello. Um, right? Because Ares is a strong and powerful figure who is usually undefeated. So he has a lot of that male machismo and pride in his, you know, he's sort of like someone, let's say, the size of the rock, right? 
constantly, but also, you know, he's, he's not a horrible person. Um, Aphrodite is an innocent bystander in this whole situation. She's not even a part of the fight at all, or the discussion between Hephaestus and Zeus and Hera. Um, and so she becomes sort of an offering on the side, which is, uh, random. And, um, and then Hephaestus is this child of trauma, again, not of his own fault because Hera and Zeus are constantly fighting and constantly one-upping each other. And so he himself is a tragic figure and the whole thing is tragic. And then of course you've got uh, Aphrodite and Hephaestus in this horrible marriage. Um, Aphrodite continues to have Ares as a lover and then takes on other lovers like Hermes and even Zeus himself tries to seduce her. Um, so the whole thing is very, very tragic um, for for these three. This whole is sort of trill uh thruple is very tragic a tragic thruple oh that's the name of a show if i've ever heard one so what happens with hermes she also has an affair with hermes um she uh, the story so there's a, a second century story that says uh hermes was stirred this is a um a roman story he was stirred by aphrodite's beauty he fell in love with her and when she permitted no favors, became greatly sad, that downcast, as if in disgrace. And so Zeus pitied him. And when Aphrodite was bathing in the river of Achilles, he sent an eagle to take her sandal uh, to this place called Amethenea of the Egyptians and give it to Hermes. And then Aphrodite was looking for her sandal uh, and came to Hermes, who was in love with her. And... Um, because she finally reached him and he had finally convinced her. I don't know what the sandal has to do with her falling in love with him and, and having sex with him. But anyway, he finally attained his desire. And as a result, as a, as a reward, he put an eagle in the sky. An eagle, of course, is Zeus's uh, symbol. So thank you, Zeus, for helping me seduce Aphrodite using a weird sandal. Doesn't that give you Cinderella vibes? It gives me such Cinderella vibes, right? Because except Cinderella leaves her own shoe behind. But in a way this lost sandal and then Aphrodite going to look for it and then bumping into Hermes who has it and her suddenly going, Oh yeah, now I do want to sleep with you. Um, has early Cinderella vibes and, um, their union actually, uh, gives birth, uh, or, uh, they have a child called Hermaphroditus, which we're going to talk about in a minute when we look at divine children, um, who is the child of Hermes and Aphrodite. And then, of course, there's Zeus. So Zeus actually attempts to rape her, to, to seduce her, to uh, assault her. Zeus once tried to rape Aphrodite on the island, on her island of Cyprus. Uh, but the goddess managed to escape his pursuit. Yeah. How does she do that? Um, he was chasing her, but he couldn't, he couldn't keep up with her. Uh, and so there's a story in uh, the Dionysica that says, uh, wild with his desire had Zeus been for Aphrodite when craving but not attaining what he wanted he scattered his seed on the ground and shot out the hot foam of love self sown <laughs> where in the fruitful land of Cyprus flourished the two um, colored generation of wild creatures called the centaurs so <laughs> let me tell you this story in short Zeus is chasing Aphrodite She's like, hell no, it's not happening. And somehow Zeus masturbates and throws his seed all over her island. Another way of sort of, if I can't have you, I'm going to impregnate your land. 
like have no words for this okay and out of that seed falling on the land creates some other foam and out of this foam come uh the centaurs okay so if you know the centaurs are the uh, half horse half uh man uh so what an interesting origin story, both for the centaurs, because I have no idea, uh, and maybe you can help me with that. I have no idea what the seed of Aphrodite has, I'm sorry, the seed of Zeus on the island of Aphrodite have to do with horse, half horse, half men. Uh, but this strange looking horned generation of centaurs were born on the island of Cyprus. And it's because Zeus dropped his so-called love shower of seed from the generative plow. Okay. Uh, so there is some very, um, there's some, there's some very interesting stories. There's another story later on that describes this in a really sort of graphic way. It says once Aphrodite fled like the wind from the pursuit of her lascivious father. Obviously this is a story in which this is her father that she might not see an unhallowed bedfellow in her own begetter, like gross. Zeus, the father, gave up the chase and left the union unattempted mm -hmm. because unwilling Aphrodite was too fast and he could not catch her. Instead, okay, instead of her bed, he dropped on the ground the love shower of seed from the generative plow. Gaia received this fruitful dew and shot up a strange looking horde generation of centaurs. Yeah. Are you creeped out? Yeah, I'm creeped out too. Um so again, actually, now I'm sorry that I think of it, one of the threats that has been forever a threat for women, especially beautiful women, especially sexualized women, is the constant pursuit of unwanted men. Uh, the constant pursuit of men who think that they can just have you because you're beautiful or because you're, in this case, a goddess of love and sex. Uh, and now we know that Zeus has no qualms chasing uh, women, mortal women or goddess females um, and turning himself into golden showers repeatedly or swans or whatever, the bull that took Atalanta away. Uh, so we, we know that Zeus has no qualms and we know that Zeus has um, all of these stories um, that in many ways represent the fantasies of Greek men at the time. Um. yeah which is disturbing in itself but um, what's really fascinating here is that Aphrodite is a powerhouse um, and Zeus still chases her but luckily he doesn't catch her and then we have this race of centaurs so uh, there's a so let's move on into mortal lovers. Not that poor Aphrodite did any better, but mortal lovers are also, again, a little bit complex. I'm just going to talk about two of her mortal lovers here, Adonis and Anchises, because uh, they, I think, are the most significant. Um, Adonis is an interesting... And, and what's really funny is that when I Googled Adonis, what came up was Drake's son. I didn't even know Drake had a son. I know, I mean, I live in Toronto. I'm not a Drake fan. Sorry, Drake fans. Uh yeah, we can't go on that rant, but I'm not a Drake fan. Uh, you know, every now and then his music is okay. Uh, but I kept seeing this 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 picture of his very adorable son. 
And uh, then I realized, oh, crap, like he named his son Adonis. And it's funny because in my culture, when you name, you don't name your child like a powerhouse name um, because it's just so it, it sort of puts on these expectations, um, this unrealistic expectation. So there's always this kind of superstition that you name your child. You want to name your child something that fits them or something that is not placing this this expectation on him. Now, Adonis is said to have been the most beautiful man in the world. Okay. And so um, it, naming your kid Adonis sometimes I think is a bit presumptuous, but lucky for Drake, the baby is super, super adorable. Um, and so hopefully he will live up um, to that name. So Adonis is a, a prince of Cyprus um, and he was loved by Aphrodite. Uh, she bore him a daughter, right? But he ended up in a, in in this tragic death. So I'm going to tell you a little bit the story of of how she fell in love with Adonis because it's a little bit weird. Um, so Kinras took some people with him to Cyprus and founded Paphos there. He marries Metharm, a child of the king Pygmalion of Cyprus, and they had Oxyporus and Adonis. Okay, so this is a bit of Adonis's background. Now, while Adonis was still a boy. Because of Artemis's anger, he was wounded by a boar during a hunt and died. So we talked about a little bit about that when I did the podcast on um, Artemis. So if you want to learn more about Adonis's death, please refer to that. Now, Hesiod says that he was the son of Phoenix and Alcephia. Alcephia, sorry, uh, But many others call him the th- son of Theseus, uh, Theus, king of the Assyrians, whose daughter was Simra, etc., so this is one of the stories of Adonis that I think is uh, most powerful about it with Aphrodite. So Sim- Simir- Smyrna. Smyrna. Smyrna did not honor Aphrodite. And because of this, Aphrodite was super angry. And because of her anger, Aphrodite made, made Smyrna develop lust for her father. And with the help of her nurse, slept with him for 12 nights without his knowing it. So somehow she seduced her father, had sex with him without the father knowing. That's the curse that um, Aphrodite put on Smyrna because she wasn't worshiping her. So I just want you to notice what that tells us about the Greeks and their feelings about ancestral relationships, right? Certainly this ancestral relationship is viewed as a curse and unnatural. When the father found out what was going on, he drew his sword and tried to kill his daughter. And he was about to overtake her when she prayed to the gods to become invisible. The gods took pity on her, poor Smyrna, and changed her into the tree called Smyrna. Nine months later, the tree split open and the baby named Adonis was born. Because of his beauty, Aphrodite secreted him away in a chest, keeping him from the gods, and left him with Persephone. But when Persephone got a glimpse of Adonis, she refused to return him because he was so beautiful. And when the matter was brought to Zeus for arbitration, he divided the year into three parts that decreed that Adonis would spend one-third of the year by himself, one-third of the year with Persephone, and the rest with Aphrodite. But Adonis added his own portion of his own year instead of spending to himself to Aphrodite's 
And then later on, while he was hunting, he was attacked uh, by a boar and died. So that story has so many layers. First of all, Aphrodite's anger that she's not being worshipped properly and punishing this this young woman with lust for her father, and not just lust for her father, but of course, then her father tries to kill her, but she becomes pregnant by her father and then and dies as a tree and gives birth to Adonis. Now, Aphrodite falls in love with the baby that she caused to come to life through this incestual relationship, hides him away. And then when Persephone sort of falls in love with him too, Aphrodite... <laughs> doesn't want to share him and takes it to Zeus and says, you know, uh, this is my person. Now, Adonis, of course, becomes her lover, Aphrodite's lover. And he's so in love with Aphrodite that he actually gives up his own term when he's supposed to be on his own to be with her. So he basically spends, you know, two thirds of the year with Aphrodite and then spends uh, a third of the year with Persephone. So a fascinating story. And then he falls prey to the boars and the hunt to Artemis, um, which Again, my girl Artemis answers to no one, so she doesn't care if Adonis was Aphrodite's lover. She punishes him anyway. anyway. Um, but right, like a really, again, tragic love story, right? Again, tragic love story. And the second uh, story, the second mortal lover that she has is Anchises. So Anchises is a shepherd, prince of Dar- Dardania. Uh, he's also the father of Aeneas, who, of course, Aphrodite and him have Aeneas. And Aeneas... Uh, is the hero um, in the Aeneid, which is basically, uh, in a way, a retelling, a Roman retelling of the Odyssey. But Aeneas is a Trojan. And so Aeneas survives um, the Trojan War as a Trojan and then runs away uh, with his father and his son and uh, settles eventually in a place that becomes Rome and Italy. That's a that's a longer story maybe for another bot- podcast. But what's really fascinating is that Anchises is his father and Anchises is the lover of Aphrodite. But interestingly, Zeus, um, because Aphrodite was s- spending so much time causing havoc among gods and men, making people fall in love with each other, particularly making immortals to mortals fall in love with each other. Supposedly it's her fault because she spent so much time doing that. Um, Zeus uh, punishes her by making her fall in love with a mortal man. Okay. And bearing a mortal son. Um, And so this is sort of her final punishment is um, that this mortal man, um, I'm trying to think of how this is punishment as as opposed to Adonis, but this mortal man eventually withers and dies. I guess Adonis didn't get a chance to do that, uh, but eventually withers and dies. Um, and in that realization, Aphrodite goes, oh my God, what have I done with this punishment of not with this punishment, but with playing around with mortals and immortals. And so basically there's a very, very long Homer, uh, Homeric hymn to Aphrodite and Anchises. And I'm not going to read all of it or we'll be here for a while. It's very long, but if you want to read it for sure, look it up. It's hymn five to Aphrodite online. And basically it just talks about how Anchises is just a shepherd, you know, tending to his flock. Aphrodite sees him. He's super beautiful. 
and she falls in love with him and is attracted to him and then seduces him. And he kind of realizes while she's seducing him that she is a divinity, but is not at first sure which divinity she is. Um, and there's a sort of long, long pieces of storytelling where uh, there's a depiction of how amazing Aphrodite is and how her family is and how powerful she is and blah, blah, blah. And how Anchises doesn't deserve him. And, uh, but he doesn't deserve her, but of course he seized with love um, and, um, you know, falls in love with her and is obsessed with her, et cetera. And they have these intimate relationships. And then um, Aphrodite throughout this relationship realizes that Anchises will eventually die um, and becomes pregnant and sort of becomes devastated at the fact that he will grow old and he will be like gross. Um, and, uh, she says to him, you know, uh, don't worry. Like I have your son and I'm going to, once I birth him, I'm going to give him to the nymphs and the nymphs are going to raise him for five years. And then they're going to bring him to you and he's going to be everything you ever wanted. But I can't really stick around and watch you get old and die. Um, so I'm going to have to leave at some point. Um, and of course, Anchises is heartbroken, but what can you do? He understands. And so uh, we, we're meant to believe that Aphrodite then has the baby and leaves him with the nymphs. Now, Aphrodite is very famous for leaving her children with nymphs and leaving her children everywhere. She's not really a, a nurturing mother figure. No, in fact, she's not a nurturing mother figure at all. Another way that she breaks societal norms is that she just has these children and leaves them on their father's doorsteps. In the case of Aeneas, she leaves him with the nymphs. Um, and then the nymphs take him to um, Anchises when he is five years old. And uh, then Aeneas does become a famous uh, hero in the Trojan War and survives the Trojan War. And if you've ever looked up Aeneas and Anchises and, and art, you know that there's a sort of traditional image of Aeneas carrying Anchises. So Anchises is old, but he doesn't want to leave his father behind in this land that has been conquered by the Greeks. So he takes him to wherever the new land is. And he gets a lot of assistance from the gods. And of course, Aphrodite being one of them. And one of the fascinating aspects about this image of Aeneas and Anchises that often gets overlooked because it's, it's seen as sort of a relationship of love, you know? So Aeneas refuses, refuses to give up his father or to leave him behind. And he carries him and carries him and carries him. Um, but really what this image is, because this is a Roman epic poem, uh, sort of a, a remake of the Odyssey in a way, although in the Odyssey, Odysseus carries no one. And in fact, is responsible for no one. He just wants to get home to his wife. Um, for the Romans, the patriots, the, the, the patriots, the patriarch of the family, uh, the, you know, the pater of the family is so significant and is so foundational to the family. The father is so foundational to the family. And so this symbol of Aeneas carrying Anchises in his old age, through all kinds of uh, troubles and adventures on their journeys, and despite numerous problems that uh, Aeneas faces uh, and threats, Aeneas continues to carry Anchises is literally the embodiment of the Roman idea that fathers must carry their sons and respect, sorry, that sons must carry their fathers and respect their fathers. And that the father, no matter how old, is still the pater, 
of the family, the, the leader of the family, the most important aspect of the family. Um, and so this image is literally the image of patriarchy, literally the image of patriarchy to me. I know that I've mentioned that a few, to a few people in conversation um, online and in other places and people are like, Oh, I never thought about it that way. It kind of disturbs me when I when I see it. I always thought it was a loving image. I think it is a loving image. Um, I think it's meant to imply both things that that sons are loyal to their fathers, that sons love their fathers. But I want you to think about how in Greco culture, uh, son, fathers fear their sons because there's this constant replay of the same story where sons kill their fathers. Um, and the idea, of course, like Freud talks about this idea of replacement, right? The idea that fathers replace sons, right? And they do in, in a certain way, both physically and politically and in every way. But in Rome, that tradition shifts. In Rome, the father of the family remains powerful and is not replaced until death. And that's not done. The idea of fathers kill, of sons killing their father becomes, you know, anathema to the Romans. Becomes, it, it is anathema to the Greeks as well, right? That's why we have the Furies. But it becomes um, uh, such a taboo. It is unheard of, unthought of, right? In theory, um, and so Aeneas carrying his father is really the um, the foundational image for the way that sons are supposed to respect their fathers and the way that fathers remain authoritative in the family until their death. Uh, so it is the image of patriarchy, um, perhaps a more loving one than fathers, uh, sons killing their fathers, but uh, it's the same one. And Aeneas is, is famously known for that imagery and I think foundational in, in Roman psychology uh, or Roman familial psychology. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about divine children. Since we're talking about uh, mortal children. Now, Aeneas is interesting because he is mortal, absolutely, but he's got so much protection from the gods and particularly from Aphrodite. She loves him very much. And so he's I was almost almost close to what I would call a mortal child. But um, the, there's a few divine offspring that I would like to talk about. The very first one, of course, um, is... Um, Eros, right? Now we talked about how Eros was supposedly born with, uh, or comes comes with Aphrodite at the same time that she's born, but over time people didn't really like that story, and so what Eros then, you know how because Eros made Ares and Aphrodite fall in love, over time the story gets shifted that um, Ares is the the father of Eros, and so that Ares and Aphrodite have Eros. And Eros, we've talked about him before a little bit. He is sort of the Cupid. He becomes Cupid in the Roman period. Uh, he's that little, often rep represented as a young man with wings who goes around causing havoc and making people fall in love. Now, again, to reiterate for the Greeks, falling in love is a weakness. I suppose for us today, falling in love, especially for men, is seen as a weakness. And so... Eros is causing havoc because he's making all these men and women fall in love with each other and just make fools of themselves. Okay. He later becomes Cupid, like I said, in the Roman period, but because he's a young man, you know, like between 15 and 19, um, that image becomes more disturbing over time. And so then he become he gets associated with the little cute kitty Cupid, um, 
actually that goes back. So there's, there's that sort of that, that image is, is, um, is older too. Sorry, I'm confusing you with dates, but he becomes more and more associated with a younger and younger and younger and baby version of himself, depending on those who are telling the story. Um, originally though, he was, um, a young man, but then he becomes sort of like a little baby, um, also causing havoc. And today we continue to worship Cupid in some ways, uh, by of course, all of the Valentine's day imagery, um, around love and the little Cupid. Um, so he actually survives quite well into the modern period. Uh, then we have Hermaphroditos, uh, who is the child of Hermes and um, Aphrodite. And this is an individual that has both biological sexes, female and male. And we used to use the word hermaphrodite um, for human beings that were born with both biological sexes. We don't use that word anymore. Uh, we can use the word intersex or non-binary or whatever other word the in individuals feel comfortable with. But the reason why those that word was being used is because Hermes and Aphrodite were said to have loved each other so much in those moments of love that they had that they literally uh, twined their bodies together into one being. Yeah. And so the idea was that, you know, then then um, their child had was sort of a fusion of these two gods and had uh, both biological uh, genders. Yeah. Um, it depends. There's another story where it says that um, the son, so he was sort of identified as, as a male biology, uh, was once a handsome youth who was attra who attracted the love of a naiad, a water nymph. Uh, called Salmachus, and she prayed to be united with him forever. And the gods, answering her prayer, merged their two forms into one. Um, and because of that, at the same time, her spring acquired the property of making men who bathe in his waters as soft and um, effem effeminate. Yeah. And so um, this child of Hermes and Aphrodite is often depicted as a soft, and I say that in quotation marks, a soft bodied uh, human with um, breasts. So again, female genitalia and then male genitalia. Um, in the ancient world, individuals that had these two biological sexes were often seen as favored by the gods certainly by Aphrodite and Hermes. And they were often artists and they were often celebrated. And this is a tough topic for me because I feel like we've come into the dark ages so far that the ancients understood diversity and celebrated diversity in a way that we have not yet learned to or have forgotten to. And I'm not trying to say like they were living in a kumbaya world, right? Of course not. But they allowed people to be who they were. 
in a way that we have stopped doing. Um, and in fact, we've turned the other way and we've become violent and hateful towards anyone that doesn't fit into traditional gender or biological gender roles. And sometimes when I look back and I see that the ancients lived a more open-minded, tolerant, acceptant life, and that people within their societies were able to live more freely, um, it irks me to a degree that I really have to then stop, pause my words before I say them because and I get a little bit upset. Uh, and so I, I really would have, I would love if we can use, um, ancient mythology and some ancient traditions, particularly around, um, gender and binary expectations. Now, to, to be fair, the Greeks created, you know, in a way, binary expectations. They weren't the only ones, but they sort of, they, they definitely outlined them well. So I know there were problems with it, but in this particular case, um, individuals that were born with both biological sexes were seen as blessed by the gods and were often, like I said, celebrated um, in culture uh, instead of being ostracized or traumatized. Um, the other and last offspring, divine child, uh, that I would like to talk about, uh, is of course Priapus. Now Priapus, poor Priapus, um, you know, he's such a interesting figure. And we've recently, there's an image here that I've, and you could probably Google Priapus and you'll see this image that we found in the, one of the frescoes in Pompeii is really one of, I think the most well-developed images. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, considering that. So Priapus has um he has a really interesting history. So after Zeus chased Aphrodite, and I'm just telling you some of the stories, okay? After Zeus chased Aphrodite and couldn't get her and spilled the seed and created centaurs, apparently Aphrodite changed her mind and decided to have a child with Zeus. But his jealous wife, Hera, laid her hands on her pregnant stomach, okay, and hexed her with a malformity. So their child was supposedly very, very ugly, okay? So that's a, that's a 10th century. That's a very late story, okay? Now, Priapus was depicted as a small man with a huge penis, symbolizing garden fertility, okay? He had a, a peaked uh, Phrygian cap indicating his origin as a Mycian god and a basket weighed down with fruit. Now, his cult was introduced to, Greet, uh, to Greece sorry, from Lampsacus in Asia Minor, and his mythology was, of course, reinterpreted. Uh, primitive statues of the gods were set up in vegetable gardens to promote fertility. These also included, these also doubled as scarecrows, keeping the birds away. And so he is often identified what we would call a phallic Greek deity. And he is often associated with Dionysus and Hermes because these are also phallic Greek deities. Um, and like I said, one of the most famous depictions of Priapus is um, is on the walls of Pompeii. And there, that image is here uh, if you're watching. So 
it's interesting. So he's a very, so we know that he's associated with a pre-Greek fertility God, a phallic God, often placed in gardens or depicted um, in homes as this is in Pompeii um, because of this idea that he brought fertility to the garden or to the family or to whatever. And it's interesting that the Greeks then again reshaped his story and actually made him, uh, perceived him as a malformed divinity. <laughs> um, again, what a fantastic way of looking at history and understanding how those in power can change stories and create what was once celebrated into something that's dismissed or disregarded. Yeah. Um, really, I think that is the epitome of mythology, storytelling. Storytelling is really powerful, right? Humans love stories. Um, and if you use storytelling well, you can make people believe whatever you might like. And if you start making those stories standard and facts or truths, then you really got power. Yeah. So poor Priapus uh, doesn't often get a lot of a lot of uh, justice. So we've talked about Aeneas. So we're moving on to mortal children. We've talked about Aeneas. Um, we talked about Aeneas. I had a whole story about Priapus for you guys. Uh, but it's kind of long. And we've got... Well... Hmm. Let me see. We've got time. Yeah? Because I'm going to go over the mortal children. But the mortal children are not as fantastic as her um, divine children. Let me read to you this um, Ovid story of Priapus and the nymph Lotus. Okay? And a donkey. So a donkey too is killed for the countryside's stiff guard, Priapus. The cause is shameful, but it suits the god. Okay. You were holding Greece, the feast of the great crowned Bacchus, celebrated by the custom each third winter. So the gods who serve Dionysus also attended, and whoever is not hostile to play, namely Pan and other young satyrs and goddesses who haunt the streams and the lonely wilds, came to play. Okay. Old Selenius came too on a swayback donkey and the red groined terror of timid birds. Priapus. So there's a party in the forest. Everyone is invited, including Priapus. They all discovered a grove suitable for party pleasures and sprawled on the grass-lined couches. So imagine them all frolicking. Dionysus, Pan, Satyrs, uh, Naiads, all these demigods and celebrities having a party in the forest, okay? Dionysus supplies the wine. They brought their own garlands, a brook of water for uh, frugal mixing, so mixing the wine. Uh, as I said, naiads were there, some with hair flowing on combs, others with locks artfully coiffured, uh, and some of their hair and their beauty generates tender fires inside the satyries. But Red Priapus, the garden's glory and protection, fell victim above all to Lotus. He desires her, 
He wants her. He sighs for her alone. He nods at her and pesters her with signs, right? He's trying to make eye contact. Disdain defines the pretty beauty. The beauty is trailed by pride. So she doesn't like it. She teases and scorns him with her looks. It was night. Wine-induced slumber and prone bodies lay everywhere, conquered by sleep. Lotus rested furthest away, tired from the partying, in the grass beneath some maple branches. Her lover rises, Priapus, and holding his breath, tracks secretly and silently on tiptoe. When he had reached the snow-white nymph's secluded bed, he took care his breathing was soundless. And now he was poised on the grass right next to her, and still she was filled with mighty sleep. His joy soars. He draws the cover from her feet and starts the happy road to his desires. Sometimes I read this stuff and I'm like, oh, what am I reading to everyone? Then look, the donkey, Selenius's mount, brays loudly and emits untimely blasts from his throat. <laughs> the terrified nympha leaps up, fends Priapus off, and awakens the whole grove with her fright. And the god, Priapus, whose obscene part was far too ready, was ridiculed by all in the moon's light. The author of all this clamor, the donkey, was punished with death. He is a victim dear to Helen Sport's God. Okay. Yeah, that was the end of the story. So I sorry, I have another story here about Aeneas. Uh, so basically, this is a story of why a donkey is killed, right, in the countryside for Priapus. So it's a story that sort of refers back to a a tradition or a ritual that uh, was done in the countryside, which was to kill a donkey once a year for Priapus during this celebration to Dionysus. But the story behind us is this story that poor Priapus was trying to seduce this girl and she was not having it. And then he tried to do it while she was sleeping and which is really disturbing. And then um, the donkey brayed loudly and uh, ruined his, uh, assault at this point really uh and uh and she screamed and fended him off and and uh, as revenge for that the donkey is killed so that's the story of uh Priapus trying to seduce a nymph unsuccessfully <laughs> okay let's move on to mortal children so we talked about Aeneas um there's a few other children that I've posted here uh, we've got Astinus, who is a prince of Syria. We've got Eryx, a king of Sicilia or Sicily, uh, who was born to Aphrodite and the Argonaut uh, Bootes. We've got Herophilus or Herophile, one of the Sibyl prophetesses who was said to be a daughter of Poseidon and Aphrodite. So remember, I was telling you Aphrodite did have intimate relationships with everyone. Uh, and we have got Lyrus, a prince of Dardania in the Trode, born to Aphrodite and um, and Anchises. So one of the things about the mortal, her mortal children, and there are many, there's a, there's a few more um, that I wanted to just kind of point out is that all of them are a king or a prince or a prophetess or something special. And the reason for that, it might be less to do with Aphrodite and more to everyone claiming that she is their mother. Okay. 
Um, there are lots of mortals who attributed their parentage to gods. Uh, Aeneas, of course, is one of the, the, the famous ones. I mean, of course, we can go back to Heracles and others. But uh, as far as mortal children, so these are not demigods. These are just mortals. Uh, many kings, as you know, princes and prophetesses used the divine as their parentage. Okay. So she has a bunch of famous children, mortal children, basically. Uh, before, remember that Zeus um, supposedly punishes her with learning that mortals die. But she continues um, to have mortal children. And again, that's another example of how she really doesn't care what Zeus or anyone else has to say. And we come to um, our last sort of point, which is her wrath, right? So remember at the beginning of our podcast, I called her a femme fatale. And I wanted to show you some examples of some of the ways, okay, Aphrodite gets angry. Um, it's a little frightening. So I'm going to give you just a few examples. There's a bunch of examples, but I'm going to give you some of my top, like let's say my top 10 examples of what she does when she's angry. So let's start with Akmon. Akmon is a companion of Diomedes of Argus, which is in Southern Greece, who vociferously, vociferously criticized the punishments meted out by Aphrodite upon his lord. So he's like, ah, she's such a jerk. The goddess transformed him into, into a sheer water for the lack of respect shown her divinity. Okay. So again, we see this transformation of humans as punishment. Now the, or Halia, Halia, brothers of six princes of the islands of Rhodes, who drove Aphrodite away when she tried to land on their island following her sea birth. The goddess was wrath and inflamed them with unnatural passions. They then committed various sexual crimes, including the rape of their own mother. Poseidon, ashamed of his sons, had them buried beneath the island. Okay. So you notice that one of the things that Aphrodite does as punishment is that she incites incest <laughs> yeah, uh, and other uh, sexual crimes. And again... I mean, this may be less about Aphrodite and more about the sexual crimes being committed and the explanation for why these crimes are being committed, of course. Uh, the Lemnian women, the women of the islands of Lemnos, Lemnos, who were infused with a terrible stench by Aphrodite as punishment for scorning her worship. When they were abandoned by their husbands uh, for Thracian brides, Aphrodite drove them to murder their menfolk. So these are a bunch of women that are supposedly really smelly which was a punishment from Aphrodite and who ended up killing their husbands for leaving them and marrying other women. Of course, the famous Menelaus, who is the prince of Mycenae, uh, and of course later the king of Lacedaemonia, who with who with a hundred other suitors sought the hand of Helen in marriage, he promised to sacrifice Aphrodite a hundred head of cattle should he win the contest. But after the wedding failed to honor his pledge. So the, the goddess was so wrathful that she designed that whole game that Helen should elope with Paris and go to Troy. Okay, so that's the beginning of the Trojan War. But in some cases, all of that is blamed on Menelaus and the fact that he didn't worship Aphrodite um, as he promised when she gave him Helen. Pasiphae, we talked about Pasiphae as the mother of the Minotaur. Uh, she was a queen on the island of Crete, the wife of King Minos. And we're told that, according to some, she was punished by Aphrodite with an unnatural lust to mate with the bull as punishment for neglecting, 
neglecting the worship of the goddess. Okay. Some others say that Poseidon actually cursed her with that. Um, And some say uh, that her lust was born out of both uh, Aphrodite's and Poseidon's uh, anger. Either way, poor Pasiphae suddenly had lust to have sex with a a bull. um, And uh, out of that comes the Minotaur. Tyndarius, a king of Lacedaemonia, southern Greece, also failed to pay Aphrodite due worship. And as punishment, his three daughters, Helen, Clytemestra, and Tim Timandra were all cursed with the notoriety of betraying their husbands. That's another story that I would love to do a podcast on. Although I think we might have to do each individual woman, Helen, Clytemestra, and Timandra. Timandra doesn't get as much press, but maybe she should. Um, who else? There's a bunch of others. Eos. Uh, which is the goddess of dawn is dawn is cursed by Aphrodite Aphrodite with an unquenchable desire for young men uh, because she um, has sex with Ares, who is Aphrodite's lover. Uh, Heracles, of course, is another demigod that incurs Aphrodite's wrath when he seduced her mortal lover, Adonis. Okay, so Heracles seduces Adonis, of course, because he can't resist him. And the goddess retaliates by instructing the dying centaur, Nessos, to have uh, Deanira, the wife of Heracles, soak the robe in his poison blood and present it to Heracles as a love charm. If you all remember the story of Heracles, that's how Heracles dies, is that he puts on this robe and he's burning to death. Well, all of that whole scene there and the demise of Heracles is put on Aphrodite. Uh, Narcissus, Narcissus, for example, or Narcissus was this handsome youth who callously spurned all who sought his love. And as a punishment for his arrogance, Aphrodite made him fall in love with himself and his own reflection. And of course, as he looked into the lake, as you know, uh, he fell in love with that reflection and reached into the lake and drowned. And lastly, the sirens, okay, who were originally the three naiad nymphs of Aetolia, who spurned love as a result of their loveless bodies transformed to those of birds by a wrathful Aphrodite. Now, I know that we haven't done sirens and I would like to do a podcast on sirens to talk about how sirens were originally half women, half bird. And then that word, how that word became associated with mermaids, which um, are of course half women, half fish. So that that's a whole interesting history on that uh but the reason why they were cursed with half body half bird is also blamed on aphrodite's wrath so aphrodite is vicious or we're told she's vicious in her anger and her anger causes severe trauma deformation transformation and of course eventual death that's pretty standard for a goddess i think um, so that is the end of our podcast for today. I think we'll finish with her wrath. Like I said, there's a lot of Aphrodite um, that I've skipped over. Uh, there's a lot. And one of the things that I'm going to talk about here, I'm going to show you my next slide for after the podcast. One of the things that I'm going to talk about in the after the podcast is her association with Isis. So Isis Aphrodite is a fantastical fusion of two goddesses 
um, that I think must, must, must be discussed, but also will take a while to discuss. And so I'm going to talk about that uh, after the podcast. Um, if you do want to listen to that, please um, sign up to my Patreon um, where you'll get access to, of course, all the podcasts, plus after the podcast and a bunch of other things that I'm doing. Um, I'm going to do a little mini series and some other things uh, that I have planned for us on Patreon. That being said, I want to thank you so much uh, for listening to this podcast and for watching this. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the journey of Aphrodite and for listening to my side rants um, and for giving me this platform um, to really discuss like all of my passions and thoughts and ideas uh, about so many uh, goddess things or goddess aspects or attributes. And it's really a joy to do this podcast. I looked forward to it every Friday. It does take me a while to put together the notes and and the slides and the all of the things I want to talk about or go through them and edit them so that I can only talk about so many things so that we're not here for five hours. Um, but you know what they say, like when you enjoy something, right? It's not really work. So I really enjoy talking to you guys. I really enjoy your feedback. I really enjoy your comments when you leave them with your thoughts and your interpretations and your even your experiences. So please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that might enjoy it, to leave your comments and to leave me any questions that you have that you might want me to discuss uh, in the finale um, at the end of season one. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you again uh, next week. Have a great weekend. See you all next week.